Dear guests, dear colleagues, dear students and dear friends of the Middle East Center, welcome to this evening's lecture. My name is Laurent Mignon. I am a fellow of the Middle East Center specializing in modern Turkish literature. This is why I would like to start the presentation of this evening's topic and guests by quoting Ahmet Hashim, one of the major Turkish poets of the first half of the 20th century. In an open letter to the novelist Halide Edip, entitled Der Zorda Amenilar Ölürken Ne Yaptınız? So what were you doing when the Armenians were dying in Der Zor? Published in November 1918 in the short-lived Yeni Istanbul newspaper, the Turkish poet denounced the massacres of Armenians and accused Cemal Pasha, one of the three military commanders who ruled over Ottoman Turkey with an iron fist during the years of the First World War, he accused him of, I quote Hashim, having fed Turkishness with human corpses as if it were a Moloch. Hashim was a lonely voice among the literati of his age. Yet the ethno-religious cleansing of Anatolia had been going on for decades, even before Jamal Pasha's rise to power, and it would continue after Hashim's angry letter. We are honored to have today with us Professor Benny Morris and Professor Dror Zevi, who will talk to us about the destruction of the Armenian, Greek, and Assyrian communities of Asia Minor during the reigns of Abdul Hamid II, the Young Turks, and uh, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, so a period between 1894 and uh, 1924. Professor Morris and Professor Tsevis are far from being unknown to scholars of the Middle East and the Ottoman Empire, and their works are on many reading lists. Now, the latest of their works they have co-authored. It is entitled The 30-Year Genocide, Turkey's Destruction of, it, of Its Christian Minorities, 1894-1924. And I believe that we are going to hear more about it now. Thank you. Well, we're going to make a, we're going to present the book in a, in a presentation in two parts. I'll sort of give a, a general overview of the book. The book is called The 30-Year Genocide, Turkey's Destruction of its Christian minorities, 1894-1924. It was published in America at the end of last month and will be appearing in Britain at the end of this month. It already came out in Italian as well. So I'll give an overview of the book and Draw will sort of zero in on one place and tracking what happened in that place over the 30-year period will sort of illustrate and, and uh, reinforce, of course, the, the general conclusions which I'll be speaking about. Over the past nine years or so, we both, both of us have studied closely the state papers of Turkey, Britain, France, the United States, and the records of missionaries, mainly Americans, from 1894-1924. During those years, the Western powers, especially the United States, has had dozens of diplomats stationed in various parts of Turkey, and dozens of missionaries lived and worked around the country. Similarly, Germany had diplomats and missionaries stationed around Turkey, and we have gone over a great deal of German material, as well as some Greek materials. Our conclusion, after nine years of research and analysis, is that the three successive Turkish regimes, the Ottoman regime under Abdul Hamid before World War I, the Young Turks or CUP regime during World War I, and Ataturk's nationalist regime during 1919-1924 all adopted and implemented a policy geared to ridding Turkey of its Christian inhabitants. Despite the thorough purge 
of the Turkish archives by Turks successively over the last few generations, it is clear from reports from the provinces that the Turkish government, governors and military were acting in these ethnic cleansing and genocidal operations on orders from Constantinople. Between 1894 and 1924, Turkey's Muslim rulers destroyed the Christian communities of Asia Minor, Eastern Thrace, and the Urmia district of Persia. Armenians, Greeks, and the Syrians, or Syriacs, in a staggered campaign of mass murder, expulsion, mass rape, and the abduction of women and children, and forced conversion to Islam. The campaign enjoyed mass support among the Muslim population and was carried out by Turkish soldiers, policemen, and civilians, and by their helpers, chiefly Kurdish tribesmen, but also Circassians, Chechens, and Arabs. In the 19th century, about 20% of the population of Asia Minor was Christian, and on the eve of World War I, the Christians probably numbered 3.5 to 4 million. By 1924, less than 2% of Asia Minor's population was Christian, and today, incidentally, 99.8% of Turkey's population is Muslim. Armenians claim that one to one and a half million Armenians were murdered in 1915-1916 during what the Armenians call the Armenian Genocide, what is usually called so in the West as well. Modern scholarship has tended to reduce this number to six to eight hundred thousand, but another two hundred thousand Armenians died earlier during 1894-1896 and some 25,000 in 1909, and tens of thousands were killed during 1919-1924. So for the whole period, 1894-1924, the number of Armenians murdered is around one million or more. Greek historians have put the number of Greeks killed during 1894-1924 at one to one and a half million. This number appears exaggerated, but certainly hundreds of thousands of Greeks were murdered by the Turks. Even pro-Turkish academics such as Justine McCarthy admit this, hundreds of thousands killed. And of course, uh, an additional 250 to 300,000 Assyrians were killed during this period by their Muslim neighbors. We have concluded that one and a half to two and a half million, and I'm being very careful, one and a half to two and a half million Christians were slaughtered by the Turks during 1894-1924, and about two million were expelled, 1.3 million of them reaching the shores of Greece. Moreover, the Muslim Turks destroyed the social, economic, and cultural religious infrastructure of these communities. Almost all Christian homes in thousands of towns and villages were destroyed or taken over by the Muslims, and all churches were leveled, save for a few dozen that were converted to mosques. The Turkish rulers during the 19th century came to hate their Armenian subjects. Since its inception, the Ottoman Empire had allowed Christians to live in its territory, but on condition of political and social subservience. In the eastern marchlands, the Armenian peasantry lived in a state of vassaldom, paying tribute to sedentary and roving Kurdish tribes and massive bribes and taxes to local officials. But with the opening up of the empire to the West, including commerce and education, the winds of liberation and nationalism, which began to affect the Turks and the Arabs, also affected the urban Armenians and to a lesser degree the Greeks of Asia Minor. 
the Muslim Turks regarded the urban Armenians' increasing prosperity and demands for equality as a threat to their social and political supremacy, and the Armenians' demands for greater freedom and even autonomy when coupled with Western and Russian diplomatic interventions calling for reform, sometimes coupled with occasional threats of military intervention on behalf of the oppressed Armenians, all these jeopardized the empire's territorial integrity and political stability in the eyes of the Muslim majority. In the late 19th century, the rise of Armenian political parties and occasional Armenian terrorism underlined the perceived multiple threat. The Hamidian regime responded in 1894-1896 with massive anti-Armenian pogroms which failed to elicit any foreign military intervention. Against the backdrop of World War I and exploiting the fog and exigencies of war, the CUP decided to finish with the Armenian problem once and for all and began to eradicate the Greek and Assyrian problems as well. Armenians were rounded up from almost every area of the country and sent on endless death marches. In 1914-15, young able-bodied men were disarmed and then either murdered on the spot or consigned to military labor battalions where they died a slow death. Women and children and the old were sent southeastwards towards Syrian deserts around Raqqa and Deir Zor. Most died along the route. Most of those who survived the deportations were murdered systematically in 1916 in a second bout of mass murder along the Euphrates. In early 1914, the Turkish government initiated, and this is before World War I erupted, the Turkish government initiated a campaign of deportation and exile vis-a-vis -vis the Greeks living on the Aegean and to a lesser extent, Greeks living elsewhere in Asia Minor. The government, using the CUP's local agents and gendarmerie, employed a variety of covert tactics, including economic boycott and low-level violence, to harass the Greeks into flight. Dozens were killed and some 150,000 Greeks fled to Greece during these first months of uh, 1914. During the subsequent World War, the Turks brutally deported inland or to Greece, which stayed out of the conflict until June 1917, hundreds of thousands more. Many thousands died in these deportations inland to mainly Muslim villages and towns, but the CUP refrained from systematic mass murder vis-a-vis -vis the uh, Anatolian Greeks as with the, Syri with the Armenians because they feared that this would force Greece to join the Allies. In the east, Turkish troops and gendarmes, assisted by Turks, killed or drove out the Assyrians from the Hakkari region and the uh, Ormia in Persia. During 1919-1924, the nationalists who under Ataturk gradually took over Turkey while engaged in wars against Russia and Armenia in the east, Greek invaders in the west, and French occupation forces in the south embarked on massive campaigns of ethnic cleansing to finally rid the country of its Christians. The remaining Armenians, reinforced by more than 100,000 who survived the 1915-1916 deportations and had returned to Turkey, were rounded up and deported or redeported southward to French Syria or to Greece. Some were massacred as in Marash in January-February 1920. But the major nationalist effort of ethnic religious cleansing uh, under Ataturk was directed against Anatolia's Greeks. In the course of 1919-1924, following the Greek army's occupation of Smyrna, 
Izmir in May 1919 and the start of the Greco-Turkish War, the Turks systematically massacred and drove out the Anatolian Greeks. Adult males were mostly executed after being taken out of towns and women and children were Armenian style sent on endless death marches inland. In 1922 the Turks changed tactics and began to drive Greeks from the interior to the ports on the Black Sea and Mediterranean and to exile in Greece. The ejection of the Greeks was completed after the signing of the Greek-Turkish exchange of population agreement in January 1923. The agreement was implemented from October 1923 until 1925, and during these two years, about 189,000 Greeks, the remainder of the Greeks in Anatolia, and 350,000 Muslims from the Balkans were exchanged. Before then, of course, more than a million Greeks had been expelled and hundreds of thousands had been murdered. All three stages of the anti-Christian genocide were accompanied by mass rape and mass conversion. Rape was often followed by murder, but tens of thousands of Christian women and children, boys and girls, were abducted into Muslim households. Turkish, Kurdish, and Arab, and converted to Islam. During World War I, slave markets were set up in Aleppo and other towns where Turks and Arabs bought and sold Christian uh, girls and women for a pittance. The three stages of the genocide and religious ethnic cleansing were linked. All three were driven by anti-Christian, anti-infidel passions and carried out as a jihad declared in Egdon by the Muslim priesthood. The later avowed secularist Ataturk also enjoined his followers to slaughter and deport Christians as part of a jihad. Particular prominent victims of the violence were Christian priests and pastors who were in all three bouts of violence routinely tortured, murdered, and even crucified, while their churches were turned into latrines or stables before destruction or conversion into mosques. Christian graveyards were invariably desecrated. Tens of thousands of Christians were forced to convert to Islam. Hundreds, perhaps thousands, preferred death. And there is endless testimony of women throwing themselves and their children into the Euphrates rather than face rape and conversion. 1894-96 paved the way for 1915-1916 in various ways as 1915-16 paved the way for 1919-1924. Each bout physically and psychologically prepared rulers and ruled and the victims for what was to follow. Each bout demonstrated what was possible. Methods too were honed as the murderous deportations of 1915 were emulated in the mur murderous deportations of 1920-1923 and the earlier bouts demonstrated for the later perpetrators that it could be done with impunity. The foreign powers would do nothing to save the Christians. Why did the three regimes and their Muslim population pursue the de-Christianization? And we're talking about de-Christianization, not de-Arminization of Turkey. Well, the first reason, as we, going through the documents, came to believe, the Christian minorities, especially the Armenians, were seen as a socio-economic and political threat to Muslim supremacy and a threat to the integrity of the state. There was a knife in the back syndrome against the background of a steadily geographically diminishing and weakening a Ottoman Empire. The second reason is Islam. 
the obligation to fight and kill the infidel, the enemy of Allah and Islam, and the threat to Islam, which the Christians represented, constantly was invoked. Which is why often softas, that is Muslim seminarians and clerics, led the pogroms as in Istanbul in 1895. In most Western reports on the various massacres in all three bouts of violence, Islam is, is said to be the driving force among the actual perpetrators. That is, even if the leaders aren't speaking only of Islam, or less frequently of Islam, the perpetrators, when they are given voice, when, when they speak or are heard, almost invariably talk about Allah, Jihad, and Islam. A third reason why all of this occurred is the rise of nationalism. Turkish national, nationalist sentiment, Turkey for the Turks, was the phrase used by the Turks, by the Muslim Turks. And Armenian nationalism and Greek nationalism and the Megali idea, the Greeks, some of them, certainly in Greece, but also occasionally in a, among Greeks a, living in, in the Ottoman Empire, talked of the resurrecting the ancient Greek empire, either from ancient days or the Byzantine Greek empire. And this too served as a cause, or a pretext at least, for Muslims to kill Greeks. That is this threat of an expansion of Greece, the expense of the Ottoman Empire. A fourth reason, and very, a very important one as well, is economic gain in all three bouts. The, the Christian assets were very important, both to the state and to individuals. That is, the state wanted the Christian uh, wealth, the money and the lands and the produce and the factories and so on, uh, also in, in order to uh, finance their wars. But they also wanted to replace Armenians and Greeks and Greeks in the economy. The Armenians and Greeks were seen as too wealthy, uh, ran too much of the industry of the state, too much of the banking of the state, and the Turkish leadership was interested in uh, replacing them with Muslim Turks. In addition, though, in all, every site where there were pogroms, and we're talking about large-scale, numerous pogroms, 1894, 1996, uh, certainly 1919, uh, 1923, there was also the, the, the personal thing, thing of booty. That is, it, people, neighbors, basically wanted the possessions of their uh, wealthier, what they saw as their wealthier neighbors. They are Christian neighbors. And every bout of violence was every, and I'm not saying most, every bout of violence was accompanied by looting, systematic looting of your neighbor's property. A fifth element was a sense of revenge, that is the need to avenge what Christians had done or purportedly had done to Muslims in the Balkans. This was carried out, of course, in, or, or Crete as well, and this was carried out by the Muslims in Asia Minor. Incidentally, in some part, also it was carried out, that is, the actual revenge was carried out by muhajirs, that is, by people who had been evicted, Muslims who had been evicted from the Balkans or the Caucasus into Anatolia, were dispossessed, had been dispossessed, didn't own things, and then given the green light, participate or even lead the slaughter in certain places. A last element which we think is important because it's so universal throughout these three bouts of violence is the concept of sexual gratification. There were literally tens of thousands of rapes in each of these bouts of violence by Muslims against Christians. And the same applies to abducting women into their households, turning them either into wives, concubines, or servants in Muslim households. So that this certainly played a part in what the perpetrators themselves were doing, this sexual urge. 
in, in our conclusion, we devoted a few pages to comparing what had happened in these bouts of violence in Turkey uh, to the Holocaust. And uh, there were certain common denominators and there are certain um, differences, important ones. If I talk about them for a minute or two, it'll highlight some of what actually happened between 1894 and 1924. Firstly, in both bout, Turks and Germans utilized the fog of war and the passions triggered by war to commit genocide. Secondly, both had in common state organization. These are not sp spontaneous acts by people against their neighbors or against minorities, but are state-sanctioned and organized in all three bouts, in Germany and in Turkey. A major difference between the two is that in Germany, civilians did not kill people. They did not kill Jews. The people who killed Jews were troops, uh, policemen, Gestapo, whatever, special groups, but uh, Einsatzgruppen, but not uh, civilians. Civilians may have seen their neighbors carted away from Germany to camps in the east, knowing or not knowing what was going to happen to the Jews, but they didn't participate in actual murder. In Turkey, tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of Turks actually murdered their neighbors, participated in the killing, and we're talking about butchery, of their neighbors. Axes, knives, and all the rest of it. And this is a major difference. In both cases, the perpetrator nation uses auxiliaries from other states or other peoples. Poles and, Ger and Frenchmen and Dutchmen help the Germans do what they do to the Jews. In, in the Turkish case, of course, we're talking mainly about Kurds, but also others, including Chechens, Circassians, and Arabs. In Germany, we're talking about one regime during a six-year period carrying out genocide, the Holocaust. And it's an aberration in some form or in the length of German history. Though in the earlier Middle Ages we do have pogroms against Jews, but in modern history this is an aberration. It's something which happens under one regime during a brief period, or a relatively brief period. In Turkey we're talking about three different regimes, supposedly working under different uh, ideological banners, but in one thing there is consistency getting rid of their Christians by death or by exile. In both cases, there's the use of deception to induce the victims to go along with what's going on because they don't know they're going to die. Turks tell them they're being resettled. Germans tell the Jews they're being resettled as well. And other types of deception are also used vis-a-vis -vis foreigners so that they don't know what's going on and so on. In both cases, the victims essentially go to the slaughter as a sheep to the slaughter. In other words, there's almost no resistance, both in the German Holocaust case and in the Turkish Christian case. We know of Musadag, you know, the 40 days of Musadag, resistance in Van or Zeytun, but there's almost no resistance by the Armenians or the Greeks to what the civilians, to what is going to happen to them. And in the German case, the same applies to the Jews. You have one or two revolts, the Warsaw Ghetto, but essentially they go as sheep to the slaughter. This is true about both cases. And there's also non-interference by foreign powers. They may talk, they may condemn, they may threaten eventual punishment of the perpetrators, but in, in, in essence, in all three bouts in Turkey, as during the World War II or the Holocaust, the foreign powers do not intervene. They don't bomb the, the railheads, they don't bomb the camps, and they don't intervene along Anatolia's shores to help the people who are being murdered. 
last thing I should mention is this very little dissidence. Very few Turks actually try to stop the ongoing murder in each three bouts. There's occasional, uh, some notables in Trabzon will complain to the, the authorities uh, that the, the, the why women and children shouldn't be killed. Okay, men perhaps, yes, but why women and children? We know of some German officers who are unwilling to participate. In the Turkish case, a few um, mutasarifs or sub-governors are pushed out of their jobs. Maybe one or two are murdered, but very, very few uh, in the hierarchy actually oppose what is happening or even object to what is happening. A few sort of prevar prevaricate and don't carry order out orders quickly, but essentially there's very little dissent. And the same applies, of course, in the German case. Let me add one last observation, and that's mine really. I'm not even sure it's in the book. I can't remember if it's in the conclusion of the book. And that is that what's happened in Turkey can be seen as the fourth bout of jihad in the conflict of the meeting between East and West, between the Muslim East from the rise of Islam in the 7th century until the present day. There are four bouts of Islamic jihad. The first one, 7th, 8th century, when the Muslims burst out of Arabia, conquered the Middle East and North Africa as far as southern France. It's a jihad of conquest. The second bout of jihad of confrontation between the Christian East, West and the Muslim East is of course uh, when the Crusaders attempt to wrest Palestine, the Holy Land, from the hands of Islam. This is, if you like, a defensive jihad by the Muslims trying to beat back the Christian invaders. The fourth bout is when the uh, Turkish, the Ottoman Empire begins to expand, or the Ottoman Kingdom begins to expand, takes Constantinople, threatens Vienna and Budapest during the 15th, 17th centuries. And the fourth bout of confrontation between uh, the Muslim East and the West in terms of jihad is of course what's going on today. You can say it begins in 1860 with the, the, the mass slaughter of Christians in the streets of Damascus and Mount Lebanon in 1860 by uh, Arab Muslim neighbors, sometimes assisted by Turks. It begins then, you can say, that this genocide of 1894-1924, at least until now, is the, the, the centerpiece of this jihad against Christianity in this modern age. You can include, if you like, 1948, the assault on Israel, and you can certainly include the Islamization of the Middle East, which has been going on steadily during the past decades, Iraq, Syria, and so on, converting the whole of the Middle East into a essentially almost uniquely um, Muslim fiefdom. That's it. Thank you. It's interesting. We wrote the book together for nine years, but I would describe it differently. It's, it's, it's weird. But anyway, uh, what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is give you an actual story to move from the macro picture to a micro one by concentrating on one particular town, Urfa, in eastern Anatolia. But first, I'd like to say something about a question that pops up a lot in recent days about our book is why do you refer to it as one genocide? You could talk about three genocides or you know you could choose one of them or, or all three. In order to answer this question I want you to take you to debates about the Holocaust for just a minute. In recent years there were two factions debating what happened in the Holocaust. One was called Intentionalist and this faction said that basically the intention to kill the Jews and other perhaps inferior races was there from the start. 
and it just proceeded in stages to the final kill. The other faction was usually called functionalist, and it claimed that there was a, maybe a general idea of getting rid of the Jews, but the idea of the final solution developed by stages in a functional way, by first killings in the battlefield, random killings and so on, until it reached the concentration camp and Auschwitz. A very similar debate goes on about the Armenian genocide of World War I. And in, in this case, we came down on the conclusion that it was intentional. The massacre, the genocide in the First World War was intentional. It was planned from the beginning, even before the deportations began and went on in planned fashion. But when you talk about the 30-year period that we're talking about, I think a functionalist explanation would be much better. And I'd like to talk about three such aspects of the functional development of genocide. They are remembering, learning, and hiding. The victims, of course, remembered from one decade to the next. But the important thing is that the different perpetrating regimes remembered. The Young Turks knew well about Abdul Hamid's massacres and even openly declared that they intended to outdo him, even in the Ottoman parliament at some point. And as he ordered his commanders to scare, massacre, and expel Armenians and Greeks, Mustafa Kemal, himself a member of the CUP, knew exactly what happened during the war. There is a clear continuation of remembrance of understanding what happened. Secondly, learning. During these years, during these 30 years, you could see a learning curve in many respects. First, at first a head-on massacre by the mob was the only method. In the second phase, during the war, organized killing by troops and death marches to the south were added. And in the third, the victims didn't have to be sent so far. Death marches were done a, shorter, a much shorter trek, and of course there was population transfer. So there was a learning curve. You could see how the regimes learned from each other and developed the strategies of genocide. And of course, the third aspect, is hiding these things from the world. In the first phase, the killing was there for all to see, inside the towns. There was a pogrom inside the towns and the, the consuls and the missionaries and anyone who was there could see it. In the second phase, dissimulation and hiding were more advanced and thousands were killed in remote valleys where no outsider's eye could see them. Uh, and the best proof that the third phase also improved on the previous one is that although hundreds of thousands were killed, as Benny said, very few knew about it, and it was much harder even for us to find proof of this last phase. My suggestion is, therefore, that this 30-year stretch could be seen as one unit in functional terms, in terms of progression rather than intention. Now let me go on to talk about the town of Orfa. This is Urfa in the southwest, you can see it here, a small town. There was, a, there was substantial Armenian population in it, and I'd like to follow it along these 30 years. As we go through the timeline, it would perhaps make sense to think about a little girl. When the first massacre happens in Urfa, she is 10 years old, let's say, which means she was born in 1885. And then we'll follow what happens to her throughout these 30 years. 
So Ufa is known as the birthplace of Abraham and there is a famous pool where according to Muslim tradition Abraham was thrown into the fire by King Nimrod and survived and uh, it's respected as a holy city by all three religions. Before the first bout of massacres it had 65,000 inhabitants, 40,000 Muslims, mostly Kurds and Arabs, and relatively few Turks, 20,000 Armenians and three or 4,000 Assyrians. In the following description, I will sometimes refer to the perpetrators as Turks and sometimes as Muslims. This depends to some extent on the material at hand. The perpetrators, as, as Benny said, was, were sometimes Kurds, sometimes Chechens, and sometimes also Turks. In the 1890s, there were small pockets of Armenian resistance, mostly Dashnaks and Hunchaks, uh, Armenian revolutionary organizations in the town of Urfa, very small ones. But Abdul Hamid's government, afraid of what it believed to be the first glimpses of insurrection, decided to nip them in the bud. Instructions were sent to the province. If disturbances happen, then the inhabitants, the Armenian inhabitants, should have learned a terrible or a harsh lesson. Locals interpreted this, perhaps correctly, as instructions for massacre. On the 28th of October, 1895, massacre started out with a dispute between a Muslim and an Armenian. Both were killed. The next morning, a mob attacked the bazaar and chased survivors to their homes. There was resistance, Armenian resistance, at the entrance to the quarter, but all who were found outside it were killed. The killing crowds didn't always differentiate between Armenians and Assyrians. The villages around the city were also attacked. Some sought shelter in Kurdish villages. Zaptiyez, that is, uh, policemen, were arresting Christian men on the street and forcing them to convert. Many did. Authorities demanded that the Armenians hand over their Martini rifles. The Armenians claimed they had none, but in order to appease the authorities collected some old guns and handed them over. The Armenian quarter was under siege and everyone in town knew that the worst was yet to come. And indeed it came in December. On the morning of the 28th of December, the Mutasarif, the governor of the town, sent word to non-Armenian Christians to assemble in their churches and not stir out. The troops, probably including Kurdish Hamidiye cavalry, were assembled at the entrance to the Armenian quarter and the armed mob behind them, cheered by the women. At around noon, the sign was given. People claimed they saw a Muslim cleric wave a green flag from a minaret and a trumpet sounded. In most cases, only males of a certain age were massacred. Some were slaughtered like sheep by a local sheikh. Towards sunset, the trumpet was heard again and the troops withdrew. In the morning, the massacre resumed. These are sort of Western depictions of the massacre. Thousands gathered for sanctuary at the Armenian Cathedral. This is a picture from the time of the cathedral. Corina Shatak, the only female missionary in town, described what happened then. The Armenian women went up to the galleries and the men stayed below. The killers first fired through the windows into the church. 
then smashed in the doors and killed the men, while the mob plundered the church treasures. They then shot at the shrieking and terrified mass of women, children and some men. These are quotes from Corinna Shatter in the second floor gallery. But this was too tedious, so the mob brought petroleum and bedding and set fire to the woodwork and the staircases leading up to the galleries. For several hours, quote, the sickening odor of roasting flesh pervaded the town. Shattuck described what had happened as a, a grand holocaust. In the following day, Shattuck saw men lugging sacks filled with bones, ashes, and so forth from the cathedral. Several months later, Gerald Fitzmaurice, the British diplomatic troubleshooter who visited the town in mid-March 1896, wrote, Even today, the smell of charred remains in the church is unbearable. Despite the attempts during the preceding 10 weeks to remove the traces, Orfa, and especially its Armenian quarters, had the aspect of a town which had been laid waste by some scar more terrible than any war or siege. It goes on. As we shall see, in future bouts of killing, the perpetrators became more adept at removing the traces. All in all, between 8 and 10,000 Christians were killed, almost all of them Armenians. Hundreds, perhaps more, converted, but most reverted to Christianity or quit Urfa and then reverted. Some Armenians turned Catholic or Syriac in the hope that this would be more palatable to the government. There was no concrete proof that the government ordered the massacre, but all Muslims in Urfa believed it did. Now we move to 1915-16. In 1915, the girl we were talking about is 30 years old. Her father could have been killed in 1895. Her mother maybe survived. She's maybe married with children. The CUP rule at first seems promising, but then the shadows arrive. There is a great massacre in Adana, in neighboring Adana in 1909. Between 20 and 30,000 Armenians are killed. They're worried for their future, but they still hold on to a belief that things will be okay. At the beginning of 1915 deportations, Urfa was still idle. But in late May 1915, convoys of Armenian deportees started passing through the town on their way to the desert. First from Zeytun and then from other places up north. Mostly women and children, emaciated, wearing rags, stinking, beaten as they marched through the main street. The Urfa Armenians were shocked. Some of the deportees were encamped outside the city with Muslim men, at least that's the descriptions we had, with Muslim men of means coming to choose women for their harems. But even though deportation from other places was in full swing, Urfa was spared for a while. It could be due to the fact that there were few Armenians in town, or that there are many civilians from enemy countries brought over from the entire Syrian and East Anatolian region, belligerents as they were called. It also had to do with the local government, Haidar Bey's reluctance to comply with the orders. And by the way, uh, Benny mentioned it, but I think I, I would put a little more emphasis on it. Throughout the period, we see quite a few courageous Turkish officials resisting the orders, either by trying to ignore them by dilly-dallying or defying the government. But because the Turks have never admitted the genocide, these people do not get the recognition and the thanks they deserve. Anyway, in early summer 1915, Haidar 
was pressured by Talat Pasha to start deporting his Armenians. Most of the pressure came from Rashid, the neighboring governor of Diyarbakir, who saw the annihilation of the Armenians as a sacred mission. By now, the Armenians in town realized that it's only a matter of time before they joined the convoys heading south and started preparing. They secretly erected barricades, dug tunnels, and amassed firearms. On the 16th of September, in a skirmish, they killed two police officers and the army encircled their quarter. They resisted, withstood several waves of attack, and then the army sent in an artillery battalion commanded by a German officer, Graf von Wolfengur. Under his direction, the Armenians were, and I quote some of the locals, literally blown from their homes. Ofwaz Kadi later testified that the 4th Army commander, Fahri Pasha, asked him for a fatwa approving the bombing of civilians. He refused, but the army went ahead anyway. After four weeks of siege, bombardment, and frontal attack, in October the uprising was crushed. The fighters were promised that they would be allowed to leave town unharmed, but after surrendering they were all shackled and executed. The women and children suffered the fate of those who passed through the town before, kidnappings, rape, and death marches southward. Almost no Armenians were left. In 1917, the assistance of Talat Pasha, the chief architect of this bout of genocide, prepared a census of Armenians for him. In Talat's black book, it was called the Black Book, it is estimated that there were 15,000 Armenian residents in Orfa in 1915, and in early 1917, only 1,000 remained. Perhaps we can assume that our girl, woman, was uh, deported to Aleppo with most of her family killed. But at some point, after Talat's census was compiled, Muslim inhabitants of Orfa realized they were left without pharmacists, bankers, millers, tanners, shoemakers, dyers, weavers, tailors, or tradesmen. They asked Jamal Pasha, commander of the 4th Army, or 3rd Triumvir, to send them back some Armenians. And in May 1917, about 6,000 Armenians, mostly from other regions, were sent back to Urfa to work with the people who massacred their families. Now we're going to 1919-1922, the last bout. After the Mudros Armistice in November uh, 1918, the British and French take over. The heads of the CUP escaped, and some, some to Azerbaijan and some to Germany. There was a Greek invasion of the western shores. Mustafa Kemal started his war against the Greeks, French, and Armenians on all fronts. After the war, the surviving refugees from Orfa sought to return. At first, the Turkish government seems willi seemed willing to assist in their re rehabilitation, but it gradually grew more obstructive. The Brits established transition camps in Orfa, as in other places, and people began to return. A relatively small number returned to Orfa, perhaps 2,000 after the war. Let's say that the, this woman came back to Orfa. When the war ended, Kilikia, Cilicia, was allotted to the French army in, in line with the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Orfa, handed over in November 1919, was France's easternmost position in Kilikia, and the French sought to make it an exemplary French town. Mainly Senegalese and Algerian soldiers were stationed there. 
When war finally broke out between the Turkish nationalist forces and the French on the 7th of February 1920, the Armenians remained neutral. In April, when the situation in the town became dire, the French decided to withdraw. They were promised safe passage by the Turks, but were ambushed on the trek across the mountain. Later on, the French returned for a while, but in October 1921, they reached an agreement with Kemal's government to withdraw. They finally withdrew in September, claiming Orfa was too precarious to hold on to. They took part of the Armenian population of Cilicia with them, and by January 1922, the evacuation was almost complete. In Urfa, only about 4,000 Armenians remained. Most of them were made to leave in the coming two years, as Turkish troops entered the area and took over. As usual, the convoys southward were subjected to a variety of depredations, including robbery, rape, and kidnapping. In early 1924, life for the handful who still held on became unbearable. They were selling their properties for a song and leaving for Syria. The lucky ones found a way to get to Europe or America. And a final note, during January and February 1924, Orfa's 4,500 remaining Assyrians were subjected to a fresh bout of persecution. Notables were arrested and murdered, women molested and robbed, and then forced to sell much of their property and leave. On March 9th, Ismet Pasha Inonu, later to become Turkey's second president, wrote to his headquarters that the reports about attacks on Christians were unfounded, but, and I quote, the forced deportation of 4,000 Christians from Urfa to Aleppo has already begun. By the end of 1924, no Armenians were left in Anatolia. Only a handful of the 600,000 Assyrians were still around, and most of Turkey's two million Greeks disappeared. About half a million murdered and the rest banished or transferred. Only in Istanbul did some remain for several more decades. The 30-year genocide begun by Abdul Hamid, carried on by the CUP, and completed by Ataturk was finally over. Thank you. Thank you once again for this presentation and the contribution to Ottoman and Turkish studies and Armenian studies and Greek studies that will be talked about a lot, I believe. Thank you.